0: hello and welcome to the strength to be human podcast with your host author and playwright mark anthony rossi in our fourth year we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world now without further ado here is your host Welcome back to Strength to be Human. We're into the interview uh, series again. Uh, I I tell you, it's never an easy task to get a hold of people uh, with their schedules, with the pandemic. I got this wonderful fellow over here from Belgium, so imagine all the time connections we have to do on that. We got uh, Michael uh, Adebato, and he is a fellow person from New Jersey as well. I don't get too many people like that on the show, so that's always exciting. Okay, uh, he, he works uh, for NATO as a, as a civilian employee over there, and he also lives in Belgium. Um, he is nominated for the Best of the Net, so that's a, that's always a great nomination to have as a writer. Uh, some of his credits are Aerial Chart, that's, that's my journal, uh, the Piker Press, and the Indian Periodical. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Thank you
1: very much, Mark, and greetings from Belgium.
0: Yeah, you're, you're definitely my first uh, Belgium uh, 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 not only listener, but also uh, a writer. I mean, I know you're not from there, but you, you know you've been there, been there for a number of years. And I have a lot of people who listen from around the world, but I only have a couple from Belgium. I'm not really sure why. <laughs> well, you just got to get the word out. There you go. I appreciate that. I really thought that would be the other way around. I would have I would have more Belgium listeners and less French listeners, but for some reason, I have a lot of French listeners. And not a lot of Belgium listens, which is really weird, because some of, some of the worst emails I get are from the French. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try not to get any
1: bad emails this time.
0: <laughs> it happens. What are you going to do? I mean, folks, uh, I, I at least I know they're listening. So, And if they're not, like, being bigoted or just completely idiotic, I mean, I'll, I'll take the hits, you know, mm-hmm. like Frank Sinatra. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, I'm so happy to see that um, – you put together this uh, this book uh, mainly because, um, and you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but mainly because you're one of those writers that have been writing for many years and, and just sort of stashed it away and, and really didn't uh, try to send things out or even put together a book. So it's great that you finally did this because otherwise that's just a lot of material that none of us are ever going to see. So just for that reason alone, that, that's, that's a celebration. All right, thank you. Yeah, I I definitely like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, because actually, as I say, uh, I write for myself, and I guess you could say the book is a product of COVID, because when when we had the lockdown over here, I got tired of beating my wife in ping pong, and we're, you know, cooking and just, you know, doing the things people do during COVID, and I travel a lot, uh, work and also for pleasure, and I always have a notebook with me, and I'm always writing in it, and... A lot of what I write the poems were observations, and I packed those in books over 15, 20 years. And one day during COVID, I pulled the book off the shelf, and it was one of my notebooks, and I went through it. I said, hey, I remember this time. Hey, there's a poem. Let me type that into my computer. After a few days, I've had 150, 200 poems that I had actually written over those years. Of course, many of them were pretty bad. And I, you know, didn't do anything with those. So what happened, the process was uh, Jana, who you know as well, Jana Begovich. Yes. And, and she said, oh, Mike, can I read some of them? I said, sure. I sent a few over, and she said, hey, I like these. Can I uh, get them published? I said, what are you talking about? She said, oh, I, I'm an editor for Aerial Chart uh, Literary Journal. I said, okay, cool, and we'd like to uh, publish some. So I did that, and I got some nice feedback, and I sent them out to a couple other uh, places. just I could have been more motivated, but I thought I'll send a few out and see what comes back but I you know as, as I said, the poems I wrote basically for me, but it's always nice to get feedback and when somebody pats you on the back or you see your name in print, it's nice to see that that's snowball basically, and a, a friend uh, another friend of Jonathan in, in Ottawa, he contacted me and said, "Hey, I'd like to publish a book of your poetry and I said okay, how much is this going to cost me? <laughs> because because you, you remember the old days, you send in a poem to the magazine, and they say, oh, we're going to publish you. All you have to do is buy 20 copies of this $50 book with your poem in it. Wow,
0: yeah,
1: so I do. I, I, I thought it would be something like that. He said, no, actually, you should make money, which I know poets will make money unless you're one of the top 20 in the world, but I was just happy to get the book out and you know, not have to do it as a vanity project. So I'm quite happy about the whole thing. It's, of course, motivated me to write even more.
0: That's, so, that, yeah. is, that is great. And it's really the classic story of, of, of people that once their, their work can get out, their, their, their voice is heard. And, and there really is a, a personal thing about knowing that someone has read your work and they and they like it and, and they do give you a pat on the back. Because I've talked to other folks that – and a few I convinced and others I didn't convince – you know, I always went to the uh, the Emily Dickinson thing, and I, and I'm not trying to be mean when I say that, but I say, do you want to just put them in the trunk and then you drop dead, and then maybe we find out about a hundred years later? Yeah. What, what do you get? What do you get out of that? I mean, try to have a little fun now.
1: <laughs> yeah, true. Everybody knows Emily, but she didn't know that they know her.
0: Yeah, yeah, she's off in Dustland somewhere, and everybody's like, she's great, and she didn't even know that. And if you think about um. Some of her thoughts, and and maybe even some of the depression and loneliness she felt, it's just a horrible thing that someone consigned themselves to. And you know, I always tell people, without being too philosophical, I I said, You're going to have the whole world that you know they're going to give you a hard time now and then. Why help them? Go out there and do something.
1: That's true. And you know, then it's also the point where if you put something out there, you open yourself to criticism. And a lot of us don't like to be criticized.
0: Yeah, it, it's definitely part of writing, it though. I mean, rejection is just like going to the bathroom. You, know, you don't like doing it, but you got to, you know? That's yeah, true.
1: <laughs> I don't mind going to the bathroom.
0: <laughs> I don't really like it. I mean, if I had I've a couple of things I could do in my life that, that can change, I, I just wish I never had to go to the bathroom again. That would be great. Oh. <laughs> yeah. and thank God for these, uh, these uh, smartphones, though, because at least you get a chance to do something in the bathroom that really is worthwhile. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Uh, just don't drop it in. Yeah, exactly, because that, that's like $3,000. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> too much. Yeah, so I was definitely uh, encouraged when I had heard about uh, that this you know, this was going to happen. And by the way, you know, and most people are not going to understand this unless they're from New Jersey, but when I saw the title for the book, uh, Missing the Exit, I'm like, that is so Jersey that I, I can't even believe it. I mean, I, I just love it.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that kind of came into play. But the the, uh, the premise really of the book was that was the hardest part was to find a, a title, I thought, because a bunch of it is about travel. During my travels, I wrote a lot of stuff, observations. And it's not just about travel, but it's hard for me to go somewhere and not spend time to look at or discover something. And I thought, you know, missing the exit. You know, OK, well, I'll just carry on, see what's out there instead of taking the exit and going home. And of course, as you know, in Jersey, oh, from Jersey. Oh yeah, what exit?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> and actually, I have a, a tattoo on my on my leg. It has uh, the Garden State Parkway symbol with exit 105 on it. So when some idiot asks me what exit, I just roll up my pant leg and say 105.
0: <laughs> there you go. That's that's some Jersey stuff right there. <laughs> I'm definitely I'm definitely for that. Well, I, I read I read some of these earlier on because uh, um I you know I published a, a few of them mm-hmm. and um so I was always excited about it. I, I remember one of the first uh, things I had said to you is like you know, one day when you do publish a book, you know, uh, you want to include some of this, but also you want to be able to put together a project that's going to go uh, beyond the travel. So this way, when the reader reads it. You know, they also know something a little bit about you and not just the travel observations. This way, it's uh, more rounded. And when I right. read the book, I was so glad that you did that because I've known other people that didn't do that. And and I've, I've been to 36 countries because so, I was in the Air Force. So I, I know a lot about travel. But even I, if I read a book all about travel, I mean, it, it, it gets uh, to your head. You know what I mean? You get a little overwhelmed. You're not really sure where you're going after a while. And, and it also opens up the... The fact that you can have an opinion that can be different about where that person went and what they saw, where mm. when they're also talking about their internal dialogue or maybe stuff that happened with their family, well, now you get to be the audience. You can't really have an opinion you know, if Michael don't like his uncle or if Michael is talking about something deep inside in his heart because you've got to now be the audience. You, you're kind of stuck that way, and that's a good thing. Where, you know, if Michael just says, you know, I went to Paris and it kind of sucked, I mean, you could say I've been there seven times and I liked it, which is the truth, actually. So that's why I didn't want you or anyone else to get stuck in, is not to do 65 poems and each one's about a country, but to sort of mix it up. And I'm really glad you did that because that, that makes it, a, 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 to me anyway, a, a more vital book.
1: Yeah, I was listening to you,
0: Mark, right? <laughs> I paid attention. Well, I, I appreciate that. I just I just know from, from the experience because it's, it's even harder to write a review about that. Can you like, because uh, in the end, it, it just sounds like it's just a big, you know, a big travel destination book. And it is, you're not finding enough elements about the person and, you know, their heart and soul and their blood and everything else. It's just a matter of uh, I had the money and I had the time, so I checked out Honduras, you know. Great. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not they sure did. if there, there's a book in there sometimes if you're not going beyond that
1: it's a lot of, uh, I don't want to feel like, Oh, look at me. I've been here. I've been here. I've been here. Johnny Cash. I've been everywhere, man. You know?
0: Yeah. It, it could sound like that, even though that's not the intention. Cause that's the funny thing is I never met anybody who put a book together like that. That's trying to brag, but unfortunately it sounds like that way when you're not putting enough of yourself in there. True.
1: Yeah. But for me, I mean, I, I feel like I'm traveling now, even though I'm at home because this isn't my country. So when I, I go downtown. The local town is called Mons or Bergen if you speak Flemish, and uh, I usually go down there, I, you know, for a beer or a coffee. Walk around. I have a notebook, so I always feel like I'm on vacation. So, I, so the mind is always open as opposed to if you're just sitting in your hometown, you know, where you spent your whole life. So for me, I'm always, I'm always somewhere different and somewhere new and somewhere like a vacation. Somewhere I'm happy that, you know with the armies because i I spent 20 years in the army and they sent me to europe long ago and pretty much i never went back so
0: (laughs) i i I definitely understand that although i had a different experience i just finished a book about it so trying to get it out there but um i had a different experience because i i spent uh even though i went around the world a lot i spent most of my time in, in germany and in germany I, I didn't have the, the the feeling of the vacation thing. I mean, even though I lived in the town I still never felt that way because I saw people looking at me because you know I'm walking around with a gun and I'm driving around and all mm-hmm. of that and it, it, you never really felt in my opinion anyway I never felt home. I always felt like I was that You know that painful reminder of you know Hitler's mistakes or something and you know now they got to endure me You know, so I, I never really felt the same way. I love being in Germany and and I I actually really enjoyed uh, seeing lots of parts of it, and I was able to make some friends as well. But um, I never really felt as I lived in my town you know, that I was part of that town. Even though I was there for five years, I still never felt that way.
1: which part of Germany?
0: I, I, I lived in Landstuhl, which is right outside of okay. Ramstein, probably about like two hours from Frankfurt. Oh, yeah, I spent time in that hospital in so Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I literally lived in the town there. It's a 900-year-old castle right above where my house was. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I used to go to the hospital a lot because sometimes when I got uh, off late at night, I, I would stop there because I didn't feel like going to a German place sometimes. I just wanted to be with not being bothered. And you can go in the hospital, and they always had some kind of thing going on the cafeteria. They even had a bookstore over there that was really good, too. So... I made a lot of stops there before I went home. Just because uh, it was a, a good way to, to unwind. It was comfortable. Yeah, I really, I really liked that place, and you know, um, and also uh, it's really, it was really was run very well. So I, I liked that as well too. And never felt like a military hospital. It always felt like a, you know, just like an open forum that you can, you know, walk around and, and do things. And so I really, I really liked it. And they gave great care. I heard for people who went there. I never had to go there as a patient. Thank God. But um, I'm glad they were able to help a lot of people.
1: Yeah, it's it's still up and running and obviously not as big as the the Cold War days when I was yeah. in the military. But I was there for uh, wisdom teeth surgery
0: long ago. So. Oh, God. I got that at the local dentist, believe it or not. That's what I got all my wisdom teeth taken out.
1: I, I had to spend a few days there because uh, we're not talking medical here, but they were impacted. So it was proper surgery, they told me. So I had to stay in.
0: Uh Well, you're glad. Be glad. Because when I was in the Air Force, the, the whole thing was, no matter what they did, here's the aspirin, go back to work. So they take uh, out two wisdom teeth. I'm dying in pain. Well, we can't give you a painkiller because that's not good. You're carrying a gun, and you are working intelligence. So just, you know, take an aspirin. It's cool. The same thing was in Saudi Arabia. I broke my ribs on an armored personnel carrier. It's 135 degrees out, and they're like, well, we're going to wrap it. Here's the aspirin. Go back to work. I never got any time off. of this crap. So I'm like, you guys are killing me here, literally.
1: Uh, <laughs> I didn't know the Air Force was so tough.
0: I I, Army. I I know a lot of people make fun of it, like it's not tough. But I I tell you right now, they they, they don't they don't give you time off.
1: <laughs> yeah. well, we used to call them bus drivers with with those hats you used to wear. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: I hear that kind but of stuff all the time. You know, and I I realize one thing deep down inside that you know I can't cure jealousy, so I I just let it go. You know.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: that's true. But it's wonderful to be out there, and uh, I I really definitely enjoyed it and got to see so much. And it definitely impacted on me, and I'm sure it does with you, too, because um, whether you realize it or not or whether you want it or not, uh, when you're away from home, things about yourself change, not just your observational skills or even your peripheral vision, but something about yourself changes too. And, and as an artist, that can also affect your writing.
1: Mm, definitely, yeah. I, uh, well, I, I first came to to uh, Europe. I had no intention of coming here, really. I signed up for three years, and I spent 18 months in the states. And then they, I got orders to go to Italy, Naples. I said, okay, I have no choice, so give it a try. And you know, I went there, and a lot of history. I, that's where I started uh, doing the University of Maryland courses in the evening for, you know, that's how we worked on our degrees back in the old days.
0: Yeah. That's why, that's where I graduated from. And mm-hmm. I, I literally did a uh, a year and a half of credits just, just from the CLEP program. I just went to a course for five hours and took it and whatever you passed on as long as you pass, they give you the credit. So, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it took like four and a half years for me to do the remaining three and a half years, <laughs> uh, but that's what I did. And, got the degree, but it took almost my entire enlistment to do it.
1: Well, you you did it quickly then because uh, for a four-year degree, it took me – from course number one I took at Fort Devens, Massachusetts until I graduated, it took me about 12 years. Oh, my
0: God. Yeah, it took me five, and trust me, it it felt like 15.
1: When you're deployed and you get to the upper-level credits and they're offering the classes and you can't do it, so you're wasting time, then you get sent from – I got sent from Italy to Belgium. And then they weren't offering up the upper level credits of the courses I need. So you just take them when you can. It's a
0: yeah, that's what you, the way. yeah that's what you had to do. I, I rushed a couple of them with the teachers. I said, listen, I know I'm going to be going to this assignment over here in two weeks. And this is like a six-week course. So can you figure out a way to give me everything and then give me the test in two weeks? Because <laughs> I got to go. Okay. So I got a couple of them to do that. And I was literally at, at my house studying my butt off. You know, with a half a bottle of brandy, because that's usually right. how we used to do things back then. You <laughs> got to have a half so a bottle. <laughs>
1: were, you were motivated to get a degree. I was just – I just wanted to learn. I just took classes because they were practically free with a tuition assistant. So I had no intention of working on a degree. I, I just wanted to learn, and that, that's what I did it for. But in the end, it turned out to be
0: a bachelor's degree, later on a master's degree. So
1: and no student loans.
0: Yeah, me neither, but I I was definitely um, motivated because I didn't want to go to the the school stateside. I I, I knew uh, my friends who had jobs, and they had all this debt, and they have all this crap they had to deal with. So in the end, they get a degree, and they still have all this baloney. I'm like, I don't care what i got to do here in Europe. Even if i got to take an extension on my friggin' enlistment, I'm going to finish this thing because I'm not going back there to deal with that crap. Because to me, there's nothing more unglamorous than... You know, I got a degree, and I but I owed them twenty-eight thousand dollars. You know, or <laughs> you know what I mean, or just 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 kind of silliness. That I'm just like, no, I'm not doing any of that crap at all. And I had to pay. It wasn't like completely free because in the Air Force you have to pay ten percent of 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 your whatever you go to school with. So I mean, yeah, that
1: was that was the same with me. At yeah, first it was but it wasn't much 20- money, you know. Yeah, it, was, it used to be like $200 of credit, I think, yeah.
0: back then. I, I think it was like – to me, I think my whole degree cost like around $2,000, and that took five years to even accumulate that. So, mm. yeah. So yeah, it, so it wasn't very expensive, and no, no complaints here. But I, I preferred all of that to doing any of that other stateside crap. I wanted to get the degree while I was still in the service, while somebody was still paying 90% of it. Because mm. I was one of those students where I was going to do well, but no one's going to give me a scholarship. So I, I knew that already going into it. I I got one for Rutgers, but even then it was only a partial, mm-hmm. and I'm like hell with this. I go to the Air Force, see the world, and I'll just go to school there, and that's that's exactly what I did. I'm like I'm not doing this uh partial this or working that or, you know, I, I'm supposed to be up all hours studying, and I just came off a you know a five hour shift of it's some cafeteria or some workplace or something. It's just ridiculous.
1: Yeah, and you guys had to do the uh. Air Force Community College associate's degree as well, right?
0: Well, yeah, I I, I literally got that off the bat. I mean, just because okay. uh, a lot of my uh, a lot of my military training was part of that uh, community college in terms of the credits. So when I started formally going to college, I already had 15 credits to starting off immediately. So that was you know because I had to go to the intelligence and communications school, so they counted a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. I think- yeah, so that kind of worked out, and then, I, then they, they let me clap out a lot of things. So I clipped out of English and, and a couple of other history and a few other things right away. And it was like 60 bucks to take a five-hour course. And, you know, it didn't even matter if you get a 75 or a 95 You still get the damn credits. This is all I cared yeah. about. I just crash-coursed it at night and went over there and took the test.
1: There you go. Yeah, I did a few clips, but they said, oh, for Humanities, for these English classes, you can clap. I said, no, I want to learn that stuff. I don't want to. Just
0: take a test yeah i was like let me clap this crap because i'm already writing poetry there's not too much more you're gonna be telling me about that i don't have an understanding of so let's get this going here you know <laughs> plus they, they worked out really well because i had to travel a lot still i wasn't always in germany doing stuff so you know with, with the clap it's easy to schedule all of that and then go on to do your stuff because you know the first thing they tell you in the air force is the air force needs to come first that's the first thing they tell you it's yeah. just a nice way of saying, "Hey, I'm glad you're going to college, but uh, that's not important as what you need to do on your assignment." So, with that understanding, you you try to um, mess with your schedule as much as you can to, to make it happen. And believe me, I I did as uh, about as as much bending on your schedule as you could possibly get. I mean, I I think I might have bribed the teacher one time because I just didn't care. I was like, "I got to do this." <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, cause so you,
1: as you say we done good,
0: the two of us, though. So. Yeah, yeah. you got to make it where you can. I mean, I only had six years. I knew I wasn't going to stay for the, for for, uh, for life. I just It yeah. wasn't going to be for me. And especially when the Cold War ended and I got to see the wall come down, that was it for me. I was like, yeah, I'm definitely gone now because now i got no reason to be uh, excited about being here. The enemy is sleeping, so what the hell's <laughs> the point? Let I me mean, just go back and do something else. Ooh. So that I mean, if if the wall didn't come down, I might have reconsidered. It might have stayed a little longer. But one of the problems with six-year enlistment is you're so close to the ten. And once you're at ten, you don't want to leave because you got ten more for retirement. So yeah. I figure I better get out of here while while the going's good.
1: <laughs> uh, there you go.
0: I loved it, but I'd love uh, to
1: get out too. You know. Yeah, for me, I joined. I was in Europe. I, I loved it, and they told me, oh, if you want to stay in Europe. Sign for three more years. We have an assignment for you in Norway. I said, yeah, okay. I've never been in Norway. Sign me up. So I did that, and then I signed on again. You can go to Belgium. You can go back to Italy. Before I knew it, I had 20 years, and I was 37 with a pension.
0: Yeah, yeah that's, that's how it can work if people are interested in that. I, I just wasn't. I wanted to stay in Europe and get the rest of the stuff done. I mean, I, I was probably one of the first people that after my fourth year – and at that point I'm a sergeant, they come to me and they go, you know, we want you to do the last two years in the National Security Agency over in Maryland. I'm like, hell no. I haven't even finished my degree yet, first of all. And second of all, there's a lot more stuff here that I can do in Europe that's more fun than being in some stupid place where you never get to see the sunlight, they read your mail, and you don't even get to wear the uniform anymore. You're wearing civilian clothes because it's the National Security Agency. I'm like, I'm not interested in that. My commander's like, well, you know, this will set your career up. I go, I'm not interested in that. I'm not going to be here for 20 years. So I don't want to do that stuff. You know, so they, he said, well, the the write that up and then just refuse to take the polygraph. <laughs> so I do that. Okay. I, I do that. And they say, okay, great. You don't have to do this. You can stay here the rest of the time for the... But then, of course, they polygraph me to want to know why it, I d- denied the polygraph. And I literally tell them the same crap. I go, I don't know, um... There's pretty girls here. Um, I'm trying to finish up my degree. Europe's more interesting than Maryland. National Security Agency sucks. I mean, so (laughs) they can see the needle. They know I was telling the truth. I'm like, goodbye now. Because, you know, I I was telling my commander, I go, what the hell? I'm a communist now because I don't want to go there? (laughs) But it's intelligence. That's what they do. So I laughed it off. But, yeah, that was the only time they tried to get me out of Europe. I'm like, nah, hell with that.
1: I'm still here after all these years.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting, wonderful place, but I, I was happy to be back to stateside after that because, to me, the military is always like high school where you enjoy the time that's there, but you know that there's a red line that you don't want to stay any longer because there's a point in high school that if you don't graduate or if you're there for seven or eight years, well, you're really failing. You're not really succeeding because it's supposed yeah. to be a four-year experience. So it's kind of the same way for me in the Air Force. I knew the six years was going to push me to the edge and... That was it for me. I'm telling you. I couldn't wait to jump on the plane when it came. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, I I, I I enjoyed the whole experience, but that was it. I mean, this is really nothing more to do. And um, I don't know how the other services are, but in the Air Force, once you become sergeant and if you're looking to move up, it, it becomes more corporate, even in a, in a bit political. It doesn't feel as military anymore. It just feels like a... You know, you went from working for the, uh, the Air Force one day, and the next day you're working for IBM. It felt like that. And it was already starting to feel that way already when they asked me to do all these additional tasks. I'm like, oh, God. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, fortunately, I had a working for NATO in the military, so it was more office jobs, some deployments. So, you know, when I wasn't at work, I had my time, and I didn't really socialize a lot with the, the military. So I was always looking outside the gate for Europe. So I guess I, that was my motivation: get this <laughs> job done and go out there and discover something.
0: I hear you. It's nothing wrong with that. It's it takes the stress off. I, I tell you, but I, you have to really enjoy being there to, to be able to stay there, however length it is. Because I know plenty of people in the service they they couldn't get wait to get out after two years because they hated being there. They they hated the Germans. They hated Germany. They hated even traveling. They just wanted to get the hell out of there. So and for that for them that makes it a, a really miserable experience. I never had that experience. I mean, I felt the the glare and the dislike of uh, of you know foreign people at times, but I got used to that. Uh, but I, I never felt uh, uh you know, I was in danger, and I certainly never felt like uh, I didn't want to be there. So that that was the good thing. I I I loved being there while the time was that I was there. No doubt. Yeah, everything's
1: temporary. Just enjoy it while you can.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And I got to write a lot when I was there too, so that was a really good, strong beginning for me as well. So, uh, well, tell me a little bit about uh, Belgium and, and and your writing experiences, because I know you have a lot of poetry about Belgium. I know you spent probably the most time there, you know, as one place, and 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 the other places you've been to. I would I would guess you were in Belgium more than you've been in Norway, you know.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I just did Norway last month for a two-week NATO exercise, or three weeks, but I, I just stayed for two. So I keep going back to all these places, at least. But I, when I joined the military, I, I did 20 years, as I said, and uh, 16, 15 and a half, 16 were spent in Europe. And I had a couple of tours here in Belgium, and I retired here as well. So from the retirement, I found myself a, a NATO civilian job that I – just slotted right into so i've been here oh overall probably 30 years in belgium wow so, long time
0: yeah that really is that's definitely a lot more than i know most people certainly more than i i actually got a chance to go to belgium for a week and my god that was a cold experience
1: oh yeah and it's a crazy country with the weather especially it's a... <laughs> it was like
0: dirty blowout and there was some people out there with like a light jacket on i got like three layers on and i'm asking the bartender. Um, can I still have children? Because I'm very cold right now. You know? <laughs> He's like, You, yeah, you must be an American. I'm like, Ha ha, yeah.
1: Well, it doesn't get as cold
0: as it used to. Because
1: I said, I lived here long ago, and it's, it's kind of warmed up a little bit, but the, the rain still falls quite a lot. Well, and,
0: uh, I thought Germany happened. was always cold because I, I, mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time in Germany, and Germany doesn't have much of a summer. In fact, when I was there in 86, summer was three weeks long, and the rest of the damn year was cold. So anyway. I, and I got used to that, and then I go to Norway. I'm like, this is nothing like Germany. I cannot believe how cold I am. Mm. it was just oh, it was so cold just last
1: month up there as well. So in in uh, end of uh, March, early April, it's it's still freezing up there. So not the place to be right now.
0: No, no, no. And I try not to be the ugly American, but I'm telling this guy, I'm like, listen, I'm freezing to death. I don't want any reindeer, okay? And uh, can you just point me to McDonald's? I want to get a coffee. Maybe I'll live. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> he looked at me like he wanted to kill me.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you're what they call the ugly American over I there. D- with that I idea. try not,
0: but it's like, I'm sorry. I, I'm not I'm not with the reindeer, and I really am shivering to death. <laughs> yeah, don't eat Bambi. Well, it took me like three days to get used to everything. By then, uh, I, I didn't feel so uh, anti-Norwegian. But in the beginning, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, who wants to invade your country? They'll die before they even get to you. It's
1: like, yeah. Lord. But but always, it, it's always the top of the list for
0: the, the happiest country in the world. Yeah, I'm not really sure where they get that from. God bless them. I mean, I think that's wonderful yeah. and everything. But, you know, I, I'm thinking that um, for them, happiness means there's just lots of things they go without. And I just don't understand that they're going without it. And that therefore, it makes them happy. That must be it. They're yeah, happy
1: to pay all those taxes, I
0: think. <laughs> that could be it, too. <laughs> Oh, God. Well, I really did enjoy the book a lot, uh, Missing the Exit. Thank you. I I liked uh, the fact that, and I know this is going to sound strange, but I liked the fact that you had a lot of poems that have real brevity without looking like you were trying to be brief about it, which is great, because I always think, for me anyway, it's in personal taste, but I always feel that the shorter poems, for me, they, they have the most impact, especially if you're writing them in a way that, you know, they can bring that impact. I like that more. It's harder for me to read a longer poem without wondering, well, couldn't you just put this in a short story? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just, a, you know, a, a artistic prejudice or something. But I always felt that the shorter poems are, you know, the best. You know, it's somewhere between 16 and, you know, like 30 Lines or something to me is it's, it's the best way to go. And you oh, did that You did that most in the book, which I think is great.
1: Yeah, because the way I see it, uh, I just say the book, the poems are basically slices of my life. Just a period of time that I lived, that I saw something, and I wrote it down. And like you said, I mean, what a poem's two, three pages, uh, you know, you kind of get lost. I, I don't want to read that much. Just get to the point point. tell me what you saw and don't speculate. And, you know, I understand some epic poems are – You know, some are really good, but your friends who don't like poetry are not going to sit down and read your four-page poem because I I probably wouldn't read one – I wouldn't write one that long, to be honest. So, yeah, I think just keep it short, sweet, and hopefully just try to give them a taste of, you know, the place you are or what you're feeling or what you're observing.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I swear in in 36 years of writing, I've never written a poem like over 50 lines. I don't even think I got to 50 lines. I mean I just – that's pretty much how I think and do it anyway, because I always felt that that length on this made no real sense. If you really had that much more to say, then you know switch over to another genre.
1: <laughs> Short stories. <laughs> yeah,
0: something like that, some flash fiction or something like that, or you could do a you know or or maybe convert it into a big prose poem where it just looks like a gigantic paragraph. Even that is actually more acceptable than people just droning on for four different pages, you literally go into the book. Oh, let's go to the third page of this poem. Oh my God, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I love Ezra Pound. I love his poets poetry, but I'm sure you read him. Yeah. You understand most of what he writes. Uh, just to me, just the short ones I like.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I I I agree, and I really think that um, brevity it, it can get to the heart of everything. I'm not a big haiku person. I like reading them, but I'm not somebody that likes to write them, and. Um, but I, I've read some people of a modern stage that did it, and, and it still came out wonderful. I could see uh, the artistic merit in that, and I could see even some of the philosophy behind it uh, being so short. So you could see how brevity can, can have a real impact, and, and how something that small can be in many ways that big. Where in many ways, I feel that somebody writing four-page poem, in the end, if you feel you've lost, or if you feel... You have doubts about what they're saying or if you're laughing inside about this could have been shorter. Everything that person has done in the length has defeated artistically what they were trying to accomplish in the first place. Mm.
1: Yeah, I I had uh, many years ago I sent a poem to a friend. uh, I think she was in uh, Malaysia and she wrote poetry and was a writer. And she said, oh, I, I showed the poem to a friend of mine and I said, what did she think? She goes, well, what was the point in the poem? Well, did she read it? <laughs> so, again, that's the criticism you don't want to hear. But to me, okay, I I don't know what the poem was, but I'm not going to send out something I don't like. But, you know, sometimes people just don't get it or they don't care or you always you have the people out there who are just ready to attack anyway. So what can you do?
0: Yeah, it, it, it's going to happen. But a lot of times – when people read something, their first take could have a real element of truth that, you know, the writer might want to try to, to explore it. Because if somebody says they generally don't have an understanding and they're not connecting, you know, and I'm not suggesting everything that a writer writes, people are supposed to have a connection for. I mean, I, there's people are going to read your book and they're going to say, I got 25 that are great and I don't know about the hell the rest of them. And, that, and that's fine, too. But, um... There's something to be said about when there's no connection to, to always review in your head or on that, on that poem. Is this something I could have said differently or what happened over here? You know, I, 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 to me, it always makes me anxious to, to wonder if, if somehow I've, I've messed up or didn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. Mm.
1: Yeah, actually, and again, uh, for me, I, I really love the beats. But probably my favorite is uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and then you have the Kerouac who writes – you know, stream of conscious, which I like. And so when I write the poems, I, I try to do that. I don't want to go back too often and change the words. Maybe, yes, you find a better word or fix a little uh, grammatical type screw up or something. But for me, it has to flow. And it flows when you first write it down. So to me, it's coming from the head through the hand onto the page. But when you start going back and play with it, I think you're changing the whole meaning of it, which is – to me it's different obviously from a, writing a book or an article or a short story where I understand the editor. You have to get it down, but with a stream of consciousness, you just want to get it down there, and hopefully it's going to sound right. But I, I try not to edit too much, but I also I, – I guess you know he's another New Jersey poet like us, uh, C.K. Williams? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I met him oh about ten years ago or so in Paris. It, unfortunately, he died a couple of years ago, probably a few years ago now. And uh, I said, well, I could see by the, the way he writes, it seems doesn't seem to be edited a lot because he's. I figure the guy has the brain; he doesn't need to. I'll goes yeah, Mike. I edit the hell out of my work, so <laughs> but you have to know how to do that. I guess I'm not to the stage where I can make it even better by doing that.
0: Yeah, you you gotta you gotta feel something about it over the course of time that you look at it and say hey i think i want to alter it here or i want to alter it there i'm an editing freak uh mainly because uh, i have a different philosophy than other writers Uh, i understand stream of consciousness and i appreciate it but i don't practice it because it it doesn't relate to the way i i operate so i i like more of a metaphorical architecture which means that i feel everything has to be in the right place and if it isn't i'm going to change it until I've, I feel that it is and, and it does what I wanted to do, and that, that's pretty much how I go about it. Other people don't have to do that, and it's not necessary. And I can see from what you're saying how, if you are a purely stream of consciousness writer, editing it's almost blasphemy in, in an artistic way.
1: Mm. Oh, of course, I do it because you know uh, my technique or procedure is write a poem. I think I wrote a couple over the past couple of days. And I won't look at them again for a few days to a week. I, I wrote it, I read it, and yeah, it sounds interesting. Next week it might sound like garbage, so <laughs> you have to read it with different eyes. You,
0: you, you do, and, and that's usually the time that people make some kind of alterations to it. But you know, um, your your particular technique, the alterations might be very slight, if any. Where mine, it's like you know, I might literally change half the damn thing a week later because I'm like, what was I thinking? That's, you know, yeah. That happens a lot.
1: <laughs> well, I, I do have some of those, and I think, what was I thinking, and how do I fix it? Because I don't remember what I was thinking. So those end up in the garbage. <laughs> yeah, but well, it's, it's a long process, really, even you know, for a stream of consciousness, typing it out. It just It takes a while to appreciate it, uh, I guess, more so for us who write them than maybe for somebody else, because – I guess we're our worst critics, or probably most writers.
0: This is true, but a lot of times, I know for myself anyway, I, I have a genuine I, an inkling about what I wrote and what it's supposed to mean, and so I'm always super surprised when somebody reads something and they have something I never intended. I'm like, what? I don't I don't dissuade them, but I'm like, I don't know how that happened, and it happens. So it's always, yeah, I had, it's always weird. <laughs> that's funny. I, I had one long ago,
1: because I, I love uh, – football or soccer as we call it back home and this is going back oh, a few decades and i joined up with these guys uh, online they were football poets huh. and so i read a lot about that and they were published on that website i think it's still going and uh, several of the guys who were older than me i was quite young back then and they've had books published so these guys knew what they were doing that not just football poetry but you know mainstream and then uh, one of them said, Hell, one of your poems is on this website. And I looked and somebody put it, it was a short one, four, four lines, is something about, uh, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, the black and white one, uh, the ball, I kind of played it off of uh, William Carlos Williams with the, the red wagon. So the black and white ball, when it was kicked and rippled the net, I'm sure it sounded better than that when I wrote it, <laughs> but somebody somebody used this. And they, it was about race, racism, not or just race relations in a positive way. So, you know, oh, look what the poet does. He says this and he does that. And I said, I did. Hey, I'm I'm pretty cool.
0: I didn't even know it. <laughs> that, they got so much out of it than what I expected when I put into it. I'm always I'm always amazed by that because you can never really like plan that. I'm, I'm going to do it in this Ooh. way, and it'll it'll be understood in five different directions. You you you, you can't. It's just uh, I think uh, just where a person is in their life or, or where they're at at that particular moment in, in, in time, it, it, it can simply resonate in a different way. You just never expect.
1: Yeah. So I actually, I wrote that, of course, what they said, that's what I wrote about, but I just didn't know it at the time.
0: <laughs> I guess there's nothing wrong with that. As long as I not getting something that's completely aberrant or something or something really abnormal, I guess Ooh. it doesn't, I guess it doesn't hurt, but I know it does happen because and particularly more, with uh with poetry because a short story or even an essay or an article there usually isn't a lot of room for that kind of interpretation Mm. it usually just has a single point of view or so you really can't get much from it but a poem you can you can get 10 different things if you want
1: yeah especially you know i think that was four lines not a lot of words yeah but obviously they were the right words
0: Yeah, exactly. A a person can can turn to... And it is not really wrong with that, because in the end, we're trying to make a connection as a writer, but the connection that we make, it might not be the one we intended, but if there's a connection made, nevertheless, that's still good. You know, it's just not about soccer, now it's about race relations or something. I know they they don't seem to have anything in common, but... (laughs) It happened. Except that the ball was black and white. So. Yeah, that's that's about it. So it's that it is unusual,
1: but hey. I'm just happy happy when somebody reads one of them and doesn't criticize it. I guess. I don't.
0: know. I think there's there's a, there's a lot of poetry out there today that that's good, but I, speaking as editor of uh, Aerial Chart, sometimes I have to turn down people, not because the poem is bad, but because it doesn't seem to hearken anything that's unique or or even passionate. Sometimes you get poetry that's so technical and so, I don't know if you want to call it lifeless, but it doesn't seem to have much of a pulse that it's, it's hard to publish something like that, even though on page, you know, it looks and sounds fine. Yeah. It just fades into
1: all the other ones though. The, you know, those that don't have much meaning to them, I guess, because you, I could read, go online read 50 different poems and, Maybe I'll remember one or two that was actually good or something that I enjoyed.
0: Yeah, it it, it, it happens, and I, I sometimes they you know they email me back and they go, well, you can't give it a shot because maybe it'll still ring out to somebody else. And, and I'm like, your your job with me is no different with any other editor on the planet. If you're not making a connection with me to some extent, then why why am I going to put that out there? If I'm going to throw away my own judgment then why the hell would I have a magazine then? So that's the thing that you have to, you know, realize that you know you, you got to be able to to make some kind of a connection with the editor. If the editor thinks you, you're going to have a chance to make a a connection with the audience, or mm. well, the readership. Yeah,
1: you know. and then again, yeah, then again, send it to another editor. Maybe it'll fit into what they're trying to say or do, or you know, different meaning for it. That that's I sent it to you to others.
0: Sorry again? Yeah, that's that's pretty much what I say on my rejection letter because you know we actually respond to people and I usually say that is unfortunately it probably sounds hollow and they probably hear that a lot but that is the truth though it, it, it might just ring out as somebody else where I I just don't I just don't get it yeah
1: there's there are some poems I wrote some in the book even that I wouldn't have sent to Ariel Chart because I know that's uh, not exactly down their street maybe but there. Another one, was a short one I wrote ages ago about uh, uh, Vincent van Gogh, and I thought there's this website I read called the, the Dope Fiend Daily. And, yeah, Dope Fiend, I, I don't think they're a bunch of junkies or anything. But <laughs> just, you know, that, that take on like they're a bit more loose, they're more having fun, and some of the guys like to use the F word, think that makes good poetry or something. But uh, one of them that I sent, uh, actually, if you don't mind, I could read this one to you. No, no, that'd be great. Okay, this one was called "For Art's Sake." That you can be a Van Gogh, paint a sunflower or a whole jar of them, cut off an ear, and fall in love with a whore. Your art can only get better. <laughs> Very short to the point. Yeah, and they loved it. Yeah.
0: yeah if you if you if you don't get a venereal disease or, or bleed to death, yeah, you yeah. can do great. <laughs> yeah,
1: there you go. And and again, uh, that's another thing that I I hope to do when I write is. Everybody knows Vincent van Gogh. So you bring in the ear, the sunflowers. So you know it's a bit about the guy, and I reference others. Like there's one about – I mentioned Jean Genet, who was a French writer. So I throw in some of the poets. I throw in writers once in a while, and I hope people think, oh, I heard that name, or who's that? Let me go Google because that's what I do when I read. They mention something, and I – start researching that's how i get on to something else so i'm just trying to you know send that back to the poets who actually enticed me to write and those who got me to research so i just hope that comes out once in a while that somebody says oh who is this guy let me just do a quick google of course they know van gogh but maybe some of the others more obscure frank o'hara for example he's in one of them
0: well wow, that's great i think that's a good idea too because it's like you're sending little, uh Little uh, gifts out there that you know, when people do some research on it, they you know that it, they get blessed by it. I I do the same thing, not as much as I used to in the past, but I still have the habit of I don't recognize this, what the hell, and then I'll go find out about it because I get too curious then.
1: Yeah, that's how we learn about good books. We read a book, somebody we like, and he mentions another book or another writer. That's how my library grew at home. I guess. Yeah. I think
0: 1100 books at the last count yeah I used to have a, a book a library it was like over2,000 over the course of the year and I got rid of most of them I just sold them to a, a book uh, dealership because it was just too much too much room and too many boxes and too much in my house and I only saved the ones I really liked but even the ones I saved is like I got like about 500 still left and that's about yeah,
1: it I'm just I'm just trying to build up a, a library because when I retire in a year or so it'll be to uh, Slovakia where my wife is from, and I want to have books to read in my retirement, good books. So no. it's just hard to buy them now and not read them because when I get a new book, I want to read it right away.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that the bookstores in Slovakia, they they probably have a lot of books in a lot of languages and not as many in English.
1: Oh, yeah. That, well, that's it's in Eastern Slovakia as well, so you'll get bookstores with a, a small English section, but they're of the classics, and I seem to have most of those already. Yeah. So, for,
0: at least the ones I wanted. Everything else is probably in French and Russian, you know? Mm.
1: And and then there are just stories of popular writers today that I really haven't gotten into just yet. So Ruth Rendell and I can't even name them, uh, Gorman. I I, say I I don't read too many modern books unless they're about travel, really. So.
0: Gotcha. <laughs> That's funny. So you got about a year or so, and then you, you're done, huh?
1: That's what I'm thinking. Well, that but, sounds uh, Where we have our place, it's in eastern Slovakia, and if you look at the map, it borders
0: the Ukraine, so
1: probably not the safest place right now.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I retired, and I'm still working, so I probably won't retire the second time until literally um, around social security age, so I got a little bit to go, but I'm okay, because unlike a lot of people where the the pandemic did negative things to them, for me, it was without sounding strange. Uh, A a weird blessing because it finally allowed me to work from home which I've been wanting to do for a long time It wasn't available and now I know it's going to be like this for years to come probably for the rest of the time I'm working so I get to do the job I want and be close to my family and I don't have to leave the house and travel anymore so you know as much as I used to travel around the world for so long now I don't even want to drive anymore it's like don't even care so I'm happy to, to be here and write, hang out with my family and you know, I'm an older guy, but I got married much later in my life, so I still have the children that are in school, and you know, middle and and high school. So I didn't want I didn't want to miss those important years by by having to travel all the time. And I used to have to do that even, but a few years ago, I had to travel to to another state just to work and then travel back, you know, hours at a time. I'm like, that's enough of this crap. So when this happened, I'm like, great. I took this job, and i I'm more happy in this job now than any civilian job I've had. Since I left the Air Force, I mean that's yeah. that's how much wonderful it is.
1: We got there in the end, then.
0: Yeah, I'm just, and I know this is gonna change. Uh, what's happened with the pandemic and, and work from home, th- that's gonna be a part of our uh, uh, lives and the economy and the country probably forever. It's just not gonna go back.
1: Well, for me, I'm fortunate. I I can leave my house and be in my office in about 15 minutes, depending on traffic. So that's that's a good thing, and I come home for lunch every day. So that works out well. My my daughter's grown up. She lives in Manchester in England, so I still have the, the time now. I just want to retire so I can do the things I want to do without that 9 to 5 job getting in the way.
0: No, I hear you. I, I'm just fortunate cuz I could still do the things I want to do and do this job and I don't have to kill myself over it, you know. And remember, I I run the journal and I do the show, you know, my own writing as well. You know, so um, yeah, I still get to do all of that stuff, and still have a family, and uh, and and still get to go to their soccer games. Although my kids are more involved in tennis now, but they were in soccer for many years.
1: Yeah, it seems to be for the younger kids. When I grow up, they do something else. My daughter is same.
0: Yeah, she he. My son is in tennis now. He's doing great with it. My other one's still in soccer though. Yeah, tennis is not my racket. <laughs> They, I, I'm, I'm glad that they took something different on. So it, it, it's, uh, to me, I think it was a better thing for him. Cause for my other son, the older one, you know, cause he matured with it. And to me, I always found that, um, the, the sports that were more solo, you, you had to have, um, a better grasp on, on who you were as a person and your maturity and responsibility and all that. Cause you know, it's not a really a team sport, tennis, where you know, soccer is. So I always thought it was great to have the soccer experience to learn about teamwork. But then it was another point when he got older. It's like, well, now you got to do your own thing. So to me, it's 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 been a, a great to have them to do both. It's a good learning experience.
1: Yeah, any experience is a good one. So yeah, I, I, do as much as they can.
0: I like I like that. So I'm going to see one of his matches on Tuesday. So he, they're almost done for the season. Yeah. How old is he? He's 16, and I have another son. He's okay. 13, so he's the one that still plays soccer. He's also a soccer referee, too, so that's how he makes some side money. Well,
1: there you go. Yeah, Yeah,
0: they pay you. If you
1: can do something where you can get paid that you enjoy, why not? Yeah,
0: they, they do that a lot and make some decent money doing it. So, And they better because uh, they know I ain't buying them video games. <laughs> <So> <laughs> if you want them, you better go get some money and, and get them. <laughs> so that works out definitely all right you anything else you wanted to talk about uh, about the book anything else I, I might have uh, I might have missed about it um, I really like it a, a, a great deal
1: right. yeah I think, no I mean it's, I think it's you know hopefully uh, some of the listeners will get out there and uh, pick up a copy and if you want to criticize it send me an email whoever reads it you know I'm quite happy to uh, talk about it but I think the problem with writing like I Have they're parts of my life, and maybe it doesn't always resonate with the other people. So, uh, I was thinking to you know put out some poems with a photograph of where they took place as well, maybe do that on a website or something. So, just uh, but then you know, somebody told me, Oh, why don't you put your photos in the book? But to me, that wasn't a poetry book anymore. So, I'm you know, I'm in two minds about what to do with it.
0: I hear you. All right, folks, you could definitely get this book, uh, Missing the Exit. Broken Keys Publishing, or uh, you can check it out on, uh, on Amazon. Uh, it's great uh, that um, he was able to find someone that supported his work. Uh, I know in many ways that we've all had some kind of a small hand in that. His publisher, the uh, senior editor of my publication, I had a little minor hand in all of it. So it's really how the artwork is supposed to work, where people try to help each other, try to point them in the right direction. So you see that there's real ways for you to get published. There's real things that you can do to to get attention, even this show. So um, I don't like people to uh, always be so negative about it. Oh, nobody cares. Well, it's really about what you're going to be putting into it. Because the more you put into it, the more you're going to help people to learn to care. Sometimes people don't care right away. you got to help them to do that, like anything else in life. And this is what he's done. So um, no one says you can't do the same. It's, it's only up to you. Definitely, and if you're gonna
1: write, you should be writing for yourself first and foremost.
0: And yeah, it's definitely one philosophy on, on doing it. If, if you don't want to have that philosophy, and if you want to write for others, well, make sure you have a thicker skin and make sure that you understand that you know you're gonna get you know some rejection just as much as you might get some some good comments, and you know just try to evaluate both the, the best you can. I'm not saying that. I love rejection, and I'm not saying that when you get it, you're supposed to have a celebration about it. But what I am saying is the cruel irony of life is that you might get more learning from a a piece of heartfelt rejection than you're going to get from somebody who says, that was great. Um, Sometimes the positive things you get are not as instructive as some of the negative things. That's just part of one of life's grueling uh, truths.
1: Failure is a good teacher. Yeah, just do do better next time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not saying you want to get you know hit in the face and you know learn something, but um, oftentimes uh, what people have to say, even if it isn't the most positive thing, could could still be useful, and we have to learn to try to take some of that in and see if there's some merit to it, because not all criticism is meritless. Definitely, I
1: totally agree.
0: All right, Mike. Hopefully, we see some more of your work in in the future here, and other publications, and maybe some more books down the line. in in the future, God knows, I'd love to have you back. It's always wonderful to have somebody from uh, from New Jersey. It certainly is exciting to have somebody who's done some travel, like like I have. That's always a a great thing. It definitely uh, I feel uh, helps uh, educate people. It definitely helps inform more of your writing, maybe and more of your own personality than. Anyway, if, I I don't know if you thought about it, but I know I've thought about what was the guy, Mark, before he went to Germany and, 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 and who he was afterwards. I noticed a distinct difference and it wasn't just because I was older and I was a little bit more mature. I noticed other things that were different about me that wouldn't have been there if I didn't, if I didn't live over there and experience what I experienced. And I'm assuming you must have some similar feelings as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the world changes you if you you have to get out of your comfortable environment and actually I have there's a poem about that you if you buy the book you can find it for, for those listening and you just have to get out to experience life to change because it's okay to be who you are but you want to maybe be a little bit more
0: and, and you definitely can and you don't have to go to Belgium folks to be able to do that I swear that if you live you know in in Scooby-Doo County, and you decide to go over to Billy Bob County two hours away, and you do that enough, it'll actually change you. Just because it's a different environment, you have to react differently, you might have to adapt. You're pretty much doing all the things you don't have to do when you're in your comfortable existence. That's the whole point of traveling, is it lets you stretch yourself out where you couldn't do that before. Even if you wanted to, you couldn't, but now you have to. And that, yeah. in a way, it spurs growth. Sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's intellectual, or even artistic. But something happens to you. So talking to other people and contacting other people and looking at other things, there's actually a, a healthy benefit for that. Absolutely, every day's a school day. Almost, yeah. You could think of it that way. I mean, you think about all you think about all the things that, in the world that are uh, that are ignorant and negative. And you always find the common denominator is the people who started the conflict or or who don't like each other never got a chance to explore anything about each other. Never did. It was always a rumor, always an innuendo, it was always a a rock across the fence to hit you in the head. Never a visitation, never a joyride, Or or never a a, a trip in, in a valley of flowers. It was always from the distance. You can't learn crap from the distance. You just can't.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, Michael, thank you very much for being on on the show. I really definitely uh, uh, appreciate you being on here. I know how difficult uh, interviews can be with arranging people's schedules, and I'm really happy you made this a lot more seamless than it normally is. So I definitely appreciate that. Uh, I also appreciate the time zone difference isn't as radical. I mean, you would not believe when you have to talk to somebody from India or Singapore. It's, it's it's rough. It's like, what? 11.5 hours? What the heck? <laughs> you know what I mean? So they're selling, they're selling jolly on it, and I'm like, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, oh, and what's going on? You know, so <laughs> uh, yours is a little more civilized, so I appreciate that. Only six hours ahead. As we say in Jersey, forget about it. <laughs> there you go. All right, okay, folks. Mark, thank
1: you very much. Michael
0: Alba Bottle, and I really appreciate it. Don't forget, folks, missing the exit, Amazon, or Broken Keys Publishing Give him a a, a whirl. You can also see his work uh, if you just want to get a little demonstration of his work because some of it's in the book. You can go to aerialchart.com and and, and check it out there. Just put his name in the search engine. You could read what we've published so you can kind of get a a, a glimpse of of his observational skill and some of his work. All right, folks, this is Strength to be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi. Until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.